Grab your Bibles, open to Acts chapter 28, which is the last chapter in the book of Acts, which is crazy. We are in this series called Resurgence. We've been going through the book of Acts since last September, and uh, we have this week and next week, and then we have three kind of messages that will kind of give us what are the takeaways from our journey through the book of Acts. We've been asking the question, what did it look like 2,000 years ago when the church first started? And what does that mean for us today in terms of what is the church supposed to look like today? How are we supposed to live our lives? How are we supposed to follow Jesus? So we've been looking at that, that kind of comparison. And so to kind of catch you up, if you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here, but kind of catch you up a little bit. The last couple of weeks as we've gotten towards the, the later chapters in this book called Acts in the New Testament, it's really focusing in on Paul, the Apostle Paul's journey, where he now is basically uh, having to defend his faith and defend himself because he has been telling people about Jesus, which has gotten him into trouble. And now he's going before different people. And now, ultimately, he's been taken into custody of the Romans, which is the, the ruling uh, nation at the time. And he's on his way to Rome because he's going to stand before Caesar to testify and defend himself and also to defend the gospel. So God has him on this trajectory. And we've talked about how, like if you're here last week, we were in chapter 27. God worked through a shipwreck that eventually brought them to a place where they got to, to dry land and God saved all the people on the ship as he's getting Paul to eventually reach Rome, which was kind of crazy. God uses a shipwreck, which we would prefer him not to use. We would like nice calm seas that get us there on time, right? So what that gets to us in chapter 28 is that they end up shipwrecked, all 276 people who survive, all of them survive, they end up on this little island called Malta. Not a part of their plan, not on their itinerary. They're headed to Rome eventually. They're not planning to go to Malta, but that's where they end up. Now, after this, after literally going weeks without food, if you remember the story last week, and going through all the pain and the struggle and all the things they went through, almost dying, and now they get on this, this island called Malta, they have to be both emotionally and physically at one of the weakest moments of their life. When you've just survived death, it's pretty much, you're excited that you're alive, but you're overwhelmed. And you're at the weakest moment of your life. But what we'll see from the story, we're going to read the first 10 verses of Acts 28. God keeps working. God keeps doing things. God keeps working through Paul's life. Because what we're going to talk about today is that God's power shows up in our weakness, which is hard for us. Because we want God to show up in our power. We want when everything's good and smooth and our life's together, God, do your work. And God says, no, I don't do it that way. Because if you're working out of your power, you don't think you need me. But if you're in a moment of weakness and struggle and pain and suffering and failure, that's when God shows up in power in, in our lives. Now, this is consistent for people who follow Jesus. And this happens a lot in life, too. That at the weakest moments where we think we have the least amount of ability is when something Im important happens in our lives. So here's an example. Take a look at this picture. Some of you maybe have followed the news the last month would know this guy. Uh, this guy's name is Luis Alvarez. And Luis is what was one of the 9-11 uh, first responders that showed up after the towers came down on 9-11 and was on what they called the pile, which is all the rubble. And they, they basically, those first responders, because he was a detective for uh, 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 New York uh, Police Department. And so when he got there, he and, uh, and thousands of other volunteers gave their time to work that pile for months. And at first it was to try to find survivors, and then eventually it was just recovery effort. But every day they were on that pile. And the result was that many of them, thousands of them, actually became sick. Some of them contracted cancer, and some of them have actually died. And so... Uh, Luis is one of those. He actually got cancer from his time on the pile. 
Well, just after 9-11, there was funding put together that would actually help fund the, the survivors as well as the family members with medical bills and all the cost that goes involved with all of the trauma they'd gone through and what they were experiencing. Well, that fund was going to come to an end very soon, and the government wasn't going to renew that, which means all the 9-11 first responders who had medical issues and challenges were going to be left with nothing. And so many of you watched the news, John Stewart, who's obviously a celebrity, kind of got his, his celebrity behind it. But what happened is Luis Alvarez was asked to come and testify before Congress as an example of this is what my life looks like. This is why this funding is so important because my family will have nothing after I'm gone. This is what he said when he was testifying before Congress. He said, you made me come down here, listen to this, the day before my 69th round of chemo. And I'm going to make sure that you never forget to take care of the 9-11 first responders. Three weeks later, Luis died. But two, three days after this, Congress passed a bill that would create unlimited funding. And then the president signed that, I think, last week or the week before. Which is awesome. Yeah, you can't applaud that. That's what we should be doing. But this is a picture of Luis Alvarez's weakest moment in his life. But the greatest thing happened through his life because he, through his testimony, turned the dialogue to say, this is what we have to do. I'm convinced it wasn't John Stewart. It was Luis Alvarez that changed Congress. And you and I need to see our lives that way, that at our weakest moment, when we feel like we have nothing to offer, is the place where God shows up in the most powerful ways to accomplish his purpose in our life. And that's what we're going to see in the story today. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to go ahead and take a look at Acts chapter 28. I'll read verses 1 through 10, and then we'll kind of walk through some of the places that we see where God's power shows up in the midst of our weakness. So again, remember, they've, they've been shipwrecked. All of them survived, 276 of them. And we pick up the story, it says verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, kindness, for they kindled the fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and he put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Like, flip like that. Verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when he had, had, uh, this place had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So in, in this story, this journey, again, the context is what? You just survived a shipwreck, and God is still at work, even though you are at your weak moment in your life. So what, how is God showing up in this story? How does God show up in our weak moments? There's five things I want to highlight. The first is this. God's power is seen in the difficulties of your past. So verses 1 and 2, primarily verse 1. Look at the first few words. It says, after we were brought safely through. Now I want you just to pause for a moment, because that's an understatement. 
if you were here last week, if you weren't, you had to play a little catch-up. Brought safely through what? The most harrowing moment of your life. You remember they set sail on a journey that should have taken them about a day, maybe two days, and it took them over two weeks. They did not eat for weeks. There are many moments that their life was literally going to end probably in just the next moment. There was a mutiny on, on the ship. Remember what the sailors were going to do? They were going to jump ship in the lifeboat and leave the prisoners and the centurion to die. And that got thwarted by Paul. And so all these things are going on. And what did Paul say? Well, and since we were brought safely through, <laughs> through what? Through hell. That's what they went through in the last two weeks. But what Paul is referencing is the story of what they just experienced gives them power once they set foot on Malta because people are looking at them. They see this ship destroyed. There's hardly anything left of it. And all people on board survive. That will get your attention. But this is the story of Paul's journey. Now, kind of fast forward to our, our day and age. When we go through something difficult and we go through some challenging, usually what we want to do is we want to forget about the weakest moments of our life. We want to forget about the low moments. We want to forget about the challenges that we have. We don't want to go back there and revisit that. But the reality is, is when you go back and revisit that, then you come to this amazing conclusion. God brought me through. See, if you don't revisit the past, you won't see what God was doing. And someone said it to me. It's so true. Sometimes you don't see God working until you're through it on the other side. And you look back and you realize, God brought me through. Not because I was perfect and because I had it all together or I was the hero of the story. No, no, no. The hero of the story is God, not Paul. And because, because God sustained Paul, Paul didn't orchestrate all seven, 276 of them being saved. God orchestrated that. But this is Paul, part of his journey. And this is so powerful because all of us have a story that begins with, this is how God brought me through. You, if you've known Jesus for a year or you've known him for 50 or 60 years, all of us have at least one, if not multiple stories, where that's the way it begins. Your past is the testimony of God's power in the midst of your weakness. So many of you, you know, I, I share my, my story all the time of different things that I've walked through. That, that for me, God has brought me through life-crippling anxiety when I was in middle school. God has delivered me from life-altering allergies that controlled me for a season of my life. God walked me through an identity crisis as a senior pastor who's supposed to have all the answers that completely reshaped who I am in following Jesus and as a leader. God walked me all through that, and I will go back and visit those moments again and again. Why? Because I can see the moments where God showed up in my weakness, where God met me when I had nothing left to offer. And that's why it's so important that all of us have that story. All of us have that thing that God has walked us through, which reminds us God shows up in our weakness. Because the, the bottom line, our story, our testimony really isn't about us, is it? It's about him. It's about what he's done in our lives. And it's a reminder that he's at work in the weakness of our life. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. He says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's through our weakness that God shows up in power. Second thing, it's God's power seen in the circumstances of our present. So verses really three through five, uh, but let me just read those verses and see what happens. So here's the current climate context of what Paul's experiencing. It says, so he's been shipwrecked. He's on He's on the, the island in Malta, and it says, When Paul had gathered the bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, 
a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Now, I just want to pause for a moment. I can't, I can speculate, but there had to be just a moment when Paul is doing what he's supposed to do, and he's just trying to help kindle the fire. The snake comes out, latches onto his hand, that just for a moment he had to think to himself, God, really? I mean, you got me through the shipwreck, and that was amazing. Only what, to get me to Malta so I die from a snake bite? There had to be just for a moment, what happens? It says, when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice is not allowed him to live. Justice is not just the term justice. It's actually one of their deities on Malta, which is basically bringing justice to somebody who is trying to escape their sentence or escape their guilt. In verse 5, uh, it says, uh, excuse me, going on, it says, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he's escaped from the sea, justice not allowed him. And then verse 5, He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. So they've already... Paul, not because of his own doing, but Paul already, and those 276 people, they already have captured the attention of the people on the island. When a shipwreck occurs and there's hardly anything left of the ship and everybody survives, people pay attention. But then, then this current circumstance, it's not enough to survive a shipwreck. Then Paul gets bitten by a snake. And now they're watching. Now, they, now they, he's really got their attention. But again, Paul didn't inter- do anything. Paul didn't cause... His, he didn't save himself from the shipwreck, and he's not saving himself from the snake bite. Who's doing that? God is. God, in his weak moments, God's working through Paul's life. He's got their attention. And this is what's so important, because we have a tendency to look at circumstances purely from a natural perspective. We don't see that God's up to anything. It's just a bad day or a bad thing that's happened to us, not realizing that God is actually in the work of doing something in the midst of our weaknesses. Because most of us say, oh, it's a snake bite. Got to go get first aid. Got to go to the hospital. Well, obviously, Paul didn't have those benefits that we do. But God was doing something in Paul. And we have to see it that way. God works that way in people's lives. We look at our circumstances, and we don't see where could God be working his power in this. All I see is weakness, 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 brokenness, failure. And in the midst of that, God is weaving his purpose in our lives. So let me just go back to the Old Testament for a minute. This, we see this happen time and time again. So Joseph's a great example. I talked about him a couple weeks ago. Not the father of Jesus, but Joseph in the Old Testament. So Joseph, really, honestly, Joseph didn't do anything except just attempt to follow God through every situation he went through. But sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused of rape in Potiphar's household, gets thrown into prison, gets forgotten, and he's rotting in jail. And eventually, Pharaoh finds out that he interprets dreams, calls him out of the prison, and then Joseph ends up being the most powerful man on the face of the earth at that time. Because God has orchestrated something. Now, there had to be those moments as Joseph is going through this, he's being betrayed, he's being lied about, he's being forgotten in prison, that he's like, God, why, wh- what, what is going on? And then there's that moment where I think Joseph starts to look back and he has one of those moments like Paul had. God brought me through. Why? Well, his brothers show up in Egypt because they're starving because there's a famine. And he's able to provide food for his family, which is the nation of Israel, going to become the nation of Israel. And this is what happens. This is when, he can, when he's, he's talking to his brothers, Joseph says this. He says, as for you, the ones that sold me into slavery, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph could not have orchestrated that. What was Joseph being? He was being sold into slavery, falsely accused of rape, and thrown into prison. None of what he orchestrated on his own. But God was working out in the midst of Joseph's weakness, positioning him for God's power to show up. 
You go on, there's other, other places. In Exodus, in when Egypt, where Israel is coming out of Egypt after four, over 400 years of slavery, God leads them out through the leadership of Moses, and they get out into the desert, and, and God leads them to what's perceived to be a dead end. They get to the Red Sea. And what happens when they get to the Red Sea? Listen, listen to the dialogue between them and the people and Moses. It says in verse uh, 10, excuse me, I think there's a misquote on this. It's actually probably uh, verse 12 through 14 or 13 in Exodus chapter 14. Uh, it says, this is what happened. It says, is this not what we said to you in Egypt? This is the people talking to Moses. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. If anybody of you have read the story, they were complaining and complaining. They were being overwhelmed. They were being oppressed. And now they're saying, ah, we, we, we prefer slavery over this. Then it says in verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Now we read that and we go, oh yeah, this is great. And then the sea opens and no, 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 you need to understand that. Egypt was the most fierce, most powerful military force on the face of the planet at that time in the world. And God has led, led them to a dead end and says to them, oh, well, wait a second. You guys, this is your weakest moment. You, you can't swim across the Red Sea. You can't escape the Egyptians who are pursuing you. But after this, what's about to happen happens. You'll never have to worry about the Egyptians again. Who is that? That's God. They can't do anything. And then Moses stands and God parts the red. Say, see, let's go to the New Testament. So Jesus has some friends, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. And Lazarus gets sick and Lazarus dies. And Jesus is just a town away. You know, and everybody knew his friends, especially Jesus can heal. Why didn't he come? Why didn't he come to heal me? Why didn't he do that? And this is what Jesus says when people start asking him, why didn't you do something? Jesus says in John 11, verse 4, he says, This illness does not lead to death. It is the, the, for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So what does Jesus do? He goes after Lazarus has died, and he raises him from the dead, which is a foreshadowing of the fact that Jesus has power over death, and he will lead us all to resurrection. But I want you just to capture this for a moment. What did Lazarus do to come back from the dead? Nothing. Lazarus is passive in this whole story. He gets sick and he dies. But what does Jesus do? He raises him from the dead. There isn't a weaker moment for any of us than death, is there? <laughs> you, can't do, you can't do anything. So Jesus comes along at Lazarus' weakest moment, raises him from the dead as a testimony to the future res resurrection. And we just want you to think about that because death is nothing that we want and we're like, uh, I don't want that option for my life, right? But that's the way God works. So let me give you kind of a modern day example. Because this is difficult, but this is the way God works. So I had a friend named Steve who lived up in Oregon and was a part of our church for a number of years. And um, Steve used to meet with a small group of guys every week. And as a part of their, their kind of Bible study and accountability, one of the things that we'd do every single week, Steve would pray and ask the guys in his small group to pray for his wife. Because his wife was a self-proclaimed atheist, but my my guess, and I think it was accurate. She wasn't an atheist. She was just mad at God, which most atheists are just mad at God. And so she refused to ever set foot in church. She refused to do anything spiritual with him. And so he kind of, everybody at church thought he was single, except if they looked at his hand, they thought he was married. But, but he was faithful in church, and he would serve, and he was passionately following Jesus, but his heart was breaking for his wife. 
And he kept praying, God, would you just bring her to you, help her, her eyes to open. And so one day Steve was out at the Oregon coast doing what he did probably a couple times a month. He's a huge kite surfer, loved doing that. So he had gotten all his gear out of his truck. He was out in the water. He was getting on, ready for his first ride. He started to get on his board as the wind started to catch his sail and dropped dead of a heart attack right there. No history of heart problems, nothing, just out of the blue. So that was a hard one to navigate. Obviously, God, I don't understand what you're doing in this. Three days later, his wife walks into the church for the first time in her life. Not the circumstances you wanted to be. And then she sits down with me and we start processing his memorial and all the things we we're going to go through. I told her story before, but she ends up coming to our church. And the first thing she realized is she realized that, that Christians are not the hypocrites I thought they were. They're actually people who genuinely love people. And so that started to win her over. And then she started showing up on Sundays and she started hearing things from the scriptures about Jesus. And eight months later on Easter, she gave her life to Jesus. And about a month later, we baptized her. Here's the, this is the cool thing. Steve doesn't know this. But when she goes into eternity, guess who Steve's gonna be standing next to? The wife that he prayed for for years. Steve could do nothing. Why? He was dead. But God was working at his, through his weakest moment of death, God brought Steve's wife to Jesus for eternity. See, that's God at work in our weakness. That means anything we go through, nothing's wasted. God is always at work in our lives, and we have to be constantly reminded of that reality. Then there's a third thing that's true of God's power, and that is that it's seen in the favor of other people. So going on, verse 6 and 7 says, but they were waiting for him to swell up, <laughs> suddenly fall down dead. So they thought he was going to die from the snake bite. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune came to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Now, obviously, Paul knows he wasn't a god. And he wasn't going to let them worship him. But then, and then going on, verse 7 says, now in the neighborhood of that uh, place, there were lands belonging to the chief of the island. His name was Publius. He received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. What happens when God shows up in your weakness? People notice. They see, they see something in you that they don't think, they don't know that they have or they've experienced, and that is you go through the, the lowest moments of your life and something happens in you that can't be something that you orchestrated. Something, in a sense, miraculous happens in your life while people are watching. Why? Because you haven't done anything, but God is working in you to do something. So I see this firsthand quite often. Um, I have the, I guess it's an advantage or a disadvantage. As a pastor, I end up going and visiting people in the hospital periodically. So, and usually, if I've come and seen you, it's not the best moment of your life. Uh, anybody who's going to the hospital, unless you're having a baby, uh, usually it's not, a good, it's not good news. But when you show up there, it's, it's usually, a, it could be, you know, it could be the end of life for somebody. It could be just a disease, or it could be a surgery you're going through, whatever. But here's one of the things, and I haven't seen it every time, but I see it quite frequently in people who are believers that end up in hospitals. Something happens in them where most other people, either it's the end of their life or they're going through, and it's completely overwhelming. And when you're overwhelmed, you're usually not the best patient because you don't have patience. And usually you're not very kind to the nursing staff that's trying to care for you. But I've seen so many times from people in our church, other people I've gone to visit who are, who are believers, I've had nurses pull me aside and say, you know, when they recover, we're really going to miss them. They're our favorite patient. We, we, we actually, we walk into the room and actually they make us happy because we don't know why they're happy. They're dying of cancer, but they're happy and we don't know why, but we're we going to be sad either when they pass away or when they leave. What is that? That's God showing up in our weakness to produce joy that we can't manufacture. 
And people look at that and go, what in the world is going on in that person? That's what's happening in this passage. Why, why is Paul getting an invite to the, the government official's house? <laughs> because he survived a shipwreck that he didn't save himself, and he survived a snake bite that he didn't save himself, and they're like, uh, we want to talk to this guy. Something's going on, and we don't get it. So he invites him over, obviously. And that's what happens when you and I experience in our weakness, people will look at us, and people may admire your strength, but they admire more when something powerful happens in the midst of your weakness because they know it's something beyond you, and people want to know, what is that? What is happening that you can have that kind of peace or you can have that kind of joy in the midst of the most difficult or weakest moment of your life? Then there's a fourth reality, and that is God's power is seen in the journey, not necessarily the destination. This is so, so important. Verses 8 and 9, It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and as Paul visited him and prayed, putting his hands on him, he, he healed him. He was healed. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came, and they were cured. Why is this so important? Because Malta wasn't on their itinerary. Malta wasn't on their plan. In fact, Malta might not even been in their vocabulary. In fact, even it says that Paul, they discovered that the island's name was Malta. They didn't know. What was the destination of the ship and Paul? Anybody recall? Rome. That's where they're headed. That, that's where their destination. Malta was not a pit stop on the way to Rome. And so there is this idea that Paul could have bought into, which is God's going to be there as I appear before Caesar and defend the faith and defend myself, and God's going to show up in power. But God was working all along the journey. God was working in the midst of a storm in a shipwreck. God was working on an island where Paul was bitten by a snake and now miracles are happening. God is at work in the midst of the journey. That means that you and I have to break this mentality that God only shows up at the finish line. We believe that. We almost feel like God's at the beginning like, okay, got you going. You get rolling. I'll meet you on the other side. And we pound our way and struggle our way through life and trials and difficult things and we think God's not there. But boy, he'll be there on the end if I can just hang on. That is such a lie. That's not biblical. That's not the way God ever dealt with people. In fact, you know what that's called? It's a form of deism, which is God got the earth rolling. He just let it go, and he'll meet us at the other side. That's not, that's not the God of the Bible. That's why Jesus came into the world. Why? Because God is present as much in the race as he is at the finish line. And if we could actually understand that, in fact, I think God does his best work in the middle of the race. Yeah, it's going to be cool when we stand before Jesus someday and we get to go into glory and we get to go into the eternity of Jesus. That's going to be awesome. But you know some of his best work is done here in the midst of our brokenness and our weakness in the middle of the race. And those are the things that are most powerful to us and the most powerful to other people around us. Those are the things that we're going to remember, that people will remember, is that at the moment of our weakness in the middle of the race, God showed up. So take a look at the screen. Let me show you another picture. Some of you are sports fans might know who this guy is. His name is Derek Redman. And even people who are not sports fans know who he is. And this is a picture from 1992, because Derek Redman is from Great Britain, and he is a sprinter around 200 meters for Great Britain in, in, the, in Barcelona in 1992. What is remembered about Derek is not that he won the race, or even he didn't win a medal, he didn't win anything. It's what happened in the middle of the race that everybody remembers about him. So he was in one of the heats to qualify for the semifinals to get into the finals for the 200 meters in Barcelona. He's literally 50 meters down the track of 200 meters, and he pulls a hamstring severely. Goes down, he's in pain, but he wants to finish. So he gets up, and he can barely walk. So he's limping while the race is already finished. The other guys have already finished the race. 
And then here comes this guy running from the stands. And at first, if you've ever seen the video, I'm not gonna play the video, but the officials tried to stop this guy. Like, who is this guy trying to get on the track? It's his dad. And it's pretty cool. When your son is hurting, you can't stop a dad. And he literally just pushes the officials away. And then he comes to his son and he puts his arm around him and they just start walking and limping down the track. And eventually he gets to the end of the 200 meters and he crosses the finish line. Everybody remembers this story. Why? Because his dad showed up in the middle of the race. He wasn't standing at the finish line like, come on, son, you can do it. Just work harder. No, he goes into the middle of the race and he helps his son get to the finish line. That's why Jesus came in the middle of human history to put his arm around us and say, yeah, I'll be at the finish line, but I'm in the middle of the race too. And if we can understand this, that means in your moment of weakness, guess who's going to show up? Jesus is. He's going to show up in the middle of your weakness and he's going to sustain you because he's a God who's faithful to be present with his people no matter what we walk through. That is our hope. And if we don't have that hope, then we should be pitied more than all is what Paul says. We have the hope in Jesus. He's going to show up in our lives. Final thing is this. God's power is seen in the provision for God's purpose. So the last verse in this passage, verse 10, says this. So obviously shipwrecked, snake bite, people getting healed. And it says, they honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So what's happening? Their ship has been destroyed. They almost lost their lives. And now they're on a brand new boat. And now they have everything that they lost. Because you remember the story from last week? Remember they started, they threw the cargo over. They hadn't eaten. Then they took a little food. Then they threw the food over. They had nothing. They didn't even have the ship. They had the clothes on their back. That's all they survived with. And now what, what's happening? After the shipwreck on Malta, which wasn't on their, on their itinerary, they're leaving with everything that they lost, including their lives. Now they're moving forward. What is that? God is doing the very thing that he said. He's going to get Paul to Rome. Paul, uh, Paul's going to testify before Caesar, and nothing can stop that. Not a snake bite, not a shipwreck, and God is going to provide all that they, he has need for to get him where he's supposed to be, which means for us, if God did it for Paul, God does it for us. God will get you through your life and provide everything that you need to accomplish his purpose in your life. Some of us need to hear that more than others. Is it not just about, about finances and resources? This is about everything that you need. God will supply. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 actually says that. You have been given everything for life and godliness through Christ Jesus. Everything. You're like, well, Pastor John, you haven't seen my bank account lately. No, I haven't, but Jesus has. And if you're part of a community of people that is the church, and you're in community with people, and you're trusting Jesus, he will get you through He'll provide for you. That's the way it's supposed to be, which, by the way, God's original intent is his people were not supposed to have be in want, but because of our brokenness and sin of the world, we have that, but there's another way to take care of that. The church and God's provision in our life. God provides for Paul. God provides for us. This is the way God works throughout history. In the Old Testament, we talked about the story where now Israel is called out of Egypt. Now they're in the middle of the desert. Really cool stuff. They get across the, the Red Sea, and now they're in the middle of the desert. Anybody been to the desert lately? I mean, like the real desert? Like, not like Palm Springs where there's all this development, but like in the middle of nowhere, gone to Death Valley lately? What's one of the things you usually don't see in the desert? Water. Same thing was true a couple thousand, few thousand years ago. They get out there, they have no water, they have no food, they just have what they can carry. And so what is the first thing God does? 
provides water. Well, okay, that's great. Water can sustain you for a little while, but you got to eat, right? So God provides manna, which literally translated in Hebrew means what is it? Because they didn't know. But my guess is that it was the perfectly engineered, nutritious meal that would sustain them. And then here's the crazy thing. So God gives them water. God gives them food. And then if you didn't have a cell phone, which newsflash, they didn't have those a few thousand years ago. You don't have a GPS. You don't have Google Maps. You don't have Waze. You don't have anything. And you get out in the middle of the desert. How are you going to find your way? So what does God do? Cloud and fire in the sky. Some by day, some by night. Here's where you're going. I've given you water. I've given you food. And I've given you a GPS system to get you where you're going. Everything that you need to trust me. And that's really cool. If you read the Old Testament, you know, there's a passage that actually says, records of that 40 years of wandering, their shoes did not wear out for 40 years. Anybody own a pair of 40 shoes for 40 years that still fit, still don't have holes in them? Yeah, I mean, no, none of us have. If we did, we'd market it and we'd beat Nike out, right? But the, what was that? That was God saying, I will take care of even the shoes on your feet to get you to where I've called you to be. That's the God that we serve. That's the way that God works. And if we believe that, that means God will take care even in our weakest moments, even in our sin and brokenness, God makes provision for our failure to get us to who he wants us to be. So let me close with this. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would they can start to come up and join me. But I want you to take a look at the screens one more time. Here's a picture on the screen here. And this is a monument that happens to sit on the island of Malta. This is a monument to the shipwreck that happened 2,000 years ago with Paul and his 276 companions. I think it was actually erected in the 1800s. But what happened was, remember, Malta wasn't on the itinerary for Paul, but it was on the itinerary for God. Because you know what came with that shipwreck? The gospel came to Malta. And this monument commemorates that event 2,000 years ago. That's crazy. Because of what happened through a shipwreck and a snake bite, the gospel comes to a small little island that they didn't even know the name of. And then 2,000 years later, there's a monument to remember that event because it so shaped the future of an island. It wasn't Paul's greatest strength. It wasn't Paul's ability. It was in the midst of a shipwreck and a snake bite, his weakest moments that God did the miraculous. That's the promise of God in our lives. That at our weakest moments, what's God going to do? He's going to show up in power, and he's going to do what he wants to do. Why? Because God will accomplish his purpose, even in our failure and our weakness. So worship team, you guys are being so patient. You can come up here, okay? No, everybody knows you're coming up. There's no secret thing like, don't look at the worship team when they come up. <laughs> but hey, what we're going to do is the worship team is going to lead us in a couple more songs. But I want us just to take a moment to prepare for communion. We're going to, in a moment, we're going to, Remember what Jesus did for us. And logistically, there's four stations around the room, and those, those, those have the elements. They have the, the bread and the cup. Back in this corner, there's some gluten-free, if, if that's something that you need. But I want us to, to prepare for what we're about to do, that when Jesus did this for the first time, he, he told us to remember. Remember his sacrifice, which is his body, which is broken for us on the cross, his blood that's shed, which is just a powerful thing for us to understand that Jesus chose to be broken and to die so that we could be forgiven and we could be free. And so what this means for us is that we come to remember, in fact, if you're visiting today, we're, you're welcome to come to the table and have the elements as long as you're a follower of Jesus and you do this with understanding. But this is powerful because one of the things that the cross requires of every person who comes to Jesus 
is that you don't come in strength. You come in weakness. You don't walk up to Jesus' sacrifice and say, yeah, I got it all together, but I guess I'll throw this one in on the side. No, someone who comes to Jesus and realizes Jesus' death on the cross means that I, my sin that I could not pay for, that kept me con- disconnected from God, only Jesus can make up the difference and reunite me with God and make me right and pure and clean. You come in absolute weakness to say, I can't do it. I can't live a right life. I can't make my life work. I can't do the right thing. I keep failing. I need somebody who's going to come in power and work a miracle in me that brings forgiveness, purity, cleanliness, white as snow, and wholeness in my life. And Jesus, you're the only one that can do that. So here's the crazy thing. The cross is our weakest moment, but Jesus' greatest victory. Therefore, it is our greatest victory. I want you just to think about this. In fact, just go ahead and close your eyes right now. Because all of us, we're not going to outwardly confess our sins to everybody around us, but I want us to understand this. Every single one of us in this room is broken. Every single one of us sins and fails. And every time we experience that, there's this disconnect between us and God. And it's only through our honest owning of that and bringing that before the Lord and literally laying that at his feet as he dies for us on the cross that finds any place of in our weakness that we can find God's power and freedom. So what I'm going to ask you to do in these next few moments, would you, would you be willing to bring your stuff to Jesus today? Whatever point of brokenness and failure, and maybe even for some, your, your, your weakest moment right now is that there is disease in your body. Your weakest moment right now is that you're in a, a broken relationship that you can't fix. Your weakest moment right now is that you are in over your head financially and you have no hope of getting out of it. But others, you may come and, yeah, you know, I have this addiction that I've been living with. I have this thing that I keep doing and I just know I don't want to live that way anymore. But, but whatever it is, you bring it and you give it to Jesus. And that's called confession. You are acknowledging what he already knows to be true about your life. And you're giving him your weakness and your brokenness and your sin. And then as you lay that, as you take those elements, then you're now receiving the righteousness of God in Jesus. This is what's beautiful. You leave your sin and your brokenness and your weakness at the cross, and you know what you walk away with? Before God, you are pure, you are right, you are clean, you are white as snow. That's the power of God in you through the cross. So in a moment, I'm going to pray, and then after I pray, you're welcome to go to the stations to do that. And then the first song the the worship team is going to sing is probably something you want to just listen to the lyrics first, and then you can join in when you feel like you've got it. But Lord Jesus, we thank you for today. We thank you for your power, that the power of the cross is your greatest victory. Therefore, it is our greatest victory at the place of our greatest weakness. So as we receive the elements that remind us of your sacrifice for us on the cross today, Lord, would you remind us of how powerful you are in the context of our weakness? And would you bring freedom to our lives as we experience your power today in Jesus' name?